Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner, your host, and I'm joined on today's programme by Jeremy and Sheila Waller. They are the joint owners and directors of Primavera Gallery, the foremost independent art gallery in Britain, based of course in Cambridge, Cambridgeshire, UK. Jeremy, Sheila, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you both on the air with us on this fine day. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to the both of you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us, of course. Now, um, the purpose of this uh, discussion is to really understand your take on leadership. So if we look at that word leader in isolation just for a moment, how does that word resonate? What does that word leader mean to the both of you? Well, from my perspective, it's trying to have a vision and form a consensus around that vision and um, see that that vision then proceeds to some sort of action. There's no point of having a vision and then nothing happens. So um, that, that's my take on it. And if we think about a leadership within the context of a business, Jeremy, how would you describe your leadership style? I've um, worked for lots of companies in in the in the world, United Technologies Systems in Germany, um, and owned companies. Leadership, I think, it varies where you work, which country you work. I've worked in East Africa. I've worked in the war in the Lebanon. Uh, worked in France and Paris, um, and now currently in in Cambridge. And Cambridge is arguably more complex than the politics that that existed in Beirut. Mm, that's incredibly interesting. Um, and with, of course, leadership comes um, a degree of people management. And leaders, of course, have to be adaptable and flexible and be able to adapt their approach to meet with certain uh, personalities. But I can imagine cultural differences also make that more of a complex challenge, don't they? And you have a great deal of experience in that working in so many countries, of course. Yeah, it's cultural and, 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 and just being able to speak the language. In the Lebanon, there were um, many different, um, well, while I was there, there were many um, different faiths uh, and many different uh, peoples, Palestinians, the Druze, uh, Christian Maronites, the Syrians, who had a very large presence, and just before I left, the Israelis. So, um, and then, of course, you had the whole mix of the international people who, who were based there. Um, in in Cambridge, looking at what we're doing at the moment, um, it's very political. There is the Labour uh, leader of the uh, city council. There is the Conservative leader of the county council. As a Liberal Democrat, leader of the South Cam's District Council, all who have authority within Cambridge City boundary, it's the Cambridge City boundary. Uh, and then you have uh, Cambridge Bid, which is a uh, private um, um, organization funded by uh, ratepayers within a bid area, and they have their own take. So it, it, it is immensely complicated trying to form a path 
in these times to come out of lockdown. And of course, it's not just coming out of lockdown in our context on the 15th of June, but it's trying to deal with people who uh, are still in isolation in their, in their homes and how do they come to Cambridge if they, and how do they feel welcomed? Um, how do they shop safely? How do they visit safely? Uh, how do they then get back? Um, and, and this will continue through until we have a vaccine. Absolutely right. It certainly will. And um, there's been some real debate about the uh, the clarity of the uh, the new COVID secure guidelines, um, as it were, for um, premises that will be introduced uh, going forward to allow things to start to slowly reopen. And that's, of course, going to be very relevant to uh, the likes of yourselves. Um, clarity and transparency are, of course, two really important facets of leadership. Do you think that maybe these guidelines do need to be a little bit clearer from that point of view? No, I think the guidelines are fine, because I think in, in many instances, you, you need to, as, as a leader or as an owner of a business, in our context, it's a retail business, you need to, you need to, uh, every business is different. In our case, we're going to put screens on the counters, on the serving counters. Um, we, we, we've, we've just sent a, a newsletter out yesterday asking visitors to come wearing masks. But that, <laughs> that might be controversial. But we will have masks available at the doors. And I think we will probably insist that people do wear masks as they come in so they don't have one. We will ask them to put one on. Because it's not... It, 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 you've got to feel that, that, that staff have to feel that they feel secure. And, and then, of course, you've got the items of how... People will be touching things. People will be wearing jewellery. People will be um, will be uh, walking around. It's, it's over two thousand square feet. It's quite a large space. Um, so we'll have to be cautious about remembering the items that people have touched, and then indeed cleaning them. And indeed, perhaps in certain instances, taking them away away with gloves and putting them in store, taking them off display, and allowing them, you know, the seventy two hours. So that when um, uh, when you bring it back, then they're safe. It's been an incredibly difficult and an incredibly tragic time um, overall, hasn't it? And there's been a great deal of worry and uncertainty, particularly among employees and employers, as you rightly say there, uh, Jeremy. Um, but we have also heard as well uh, some fantastic stories about how this uh, pandemic has brought us closer together as um, a nation in a way, really brought out the best of people in uh, times of, of adversity. Um, have you been inspired by the way that people around you have reacted at Primavera? Yes. Very much so. I think there's a, there's a sense of fear. Uh, we deal with a, a, a lot of people, not just within Cambridge, but outside Cambridge, um, in London and in um, uh, in Ely, which is in Cambridgeshire. And um, there is a um, there are people who are very very fearful. And um, I met someone three days ago. Who has a, uh, a, a disabled child, and uh, he he's begun to work again, and he's self isolated himself from his child, and from that child's sister, and indeed from his wife, uh, to the extent that you know even outside. So he has his own chair, which is sitting outside. It's lucky it's nice weather at the moment, um, but he he will not go close or or touch them or share anything with them. 
while he's working. Now that could continue for a very long time. It certainly because could. Because he doesn't know. He, he, he could meet me and I could have the virus or he could meet somebody else who he's having business dealings with. Mm. And then, you know, he just does not want to pass it on to his wife. Uh, and then in turn for her to pass it on to his disabled child. So it's, it, it, but he's very cheerful. He's getting on with life and, you know, we, it, but it, is, it isn't easy. It's not, and it takes a great deal of leadership and a great deal of integrity from everyone uh, during this time. And um, we talked a little bit uh, briefly about inspiration uh, there that can really be drawn from uh, many sources. But as you've developed through uh, your career, Jeremy, considering that you've been exposed to many different countries, many different cultures, are there any people who really stick out that have maybe been a real inspiration to you as you've developed through your career? Well, probably... The, um, the Kenyans that we used to work with, most of the Kenyans were very um, kindly, were very um, patient. Uh, we had someone who we worked with who came to work one morning and uh, we wondered why he was a bit late. And we said, why are you a bit late? He said, I don't think he was burying his child, but he had just found his child who was dead. It was an old, elderly child who had, I think, committed suicide. Um, and uh, so we said to him, Yosat, why are you here? This is a terrible thing. And we were looking at it with Western eyes. He said, no, he's in a happier place. Uh, this is, I remember, it was some time ago. He's in a happier place now. And... Um, um, you know, life must go on. It, it, I think. I think the that that um, of all the people, I could give you other uh, instances in in uh, Baalbek or in, in Damascus and things. But I think that that in, that that um, message I remember most of all. Mm, it's incredibly um, inspiring uh, that message, and I think it's. Um quite relevant to, to now uh, for certain considering the context of what we're going through um, at the moment and if we think about what the uh, the future might hold over the next year and uh, beyond Jeremy for yourselves and uh, Primavera uh, what do you envision um, the gallery achieving um, in that time and what are your ambitions for the next uh, 12 months and beyond once we do move through this pandemic? Well I would love to say to you that we're very ambitious but we've just been removing items from uh, our van which we've taken from Cambridge from the gallery in order to reopen and have a clearer space and a better message. If we can just keep going, um, uh, being financially solvent, uh, it's not easy because there are pressures which we're not in control of. The moment the colleges are insisting that we pay 100% of the rents which are due, and despite the government being very helpful with the, the grant and with uh, rate relief, and indeed the possibility of a business loan, some things are legally not possible by yourself. So if we can just keep going until there's a vaccine, uh, until people feel happy to, 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 to return um, to, to the city of Cambridge and indeed to exhibit their work. Uh, with us, or oh, um, that—that is—that is my objective.
Let's hope certainly that we do start to see things uh, changing as we emerge through this uh, pandemic in due course and hopefully people do uh, begin to uh, to return in that respect. And hopefully if um, there is a positive story to tell in the uh, the next year or so, uh, Jeremy, Sheila, I think it would be great to have you both uh, back on the programme to just catch up on where things are at that point in time and just see how things um, have changed in the meantime. Well, we'll be very happy to do that, Scott. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank it's you. been wonderful having the both of you on the uh, the programme and do take care and do stay safe as well in the meantime. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. That was Jeremy and Sheila Waller, joint owners and directors of Primavera Gallery in Cambridge, UK. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to my colleague Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Sir Andrew is currently the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. As England captain during his cricket career, he became one of only three England skippers to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. And he is also the England Test captain with the second highest number of Test victories under his belt in history. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with him. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to completely different world almost i'd been i was a middlesex player i was mm. captain of middlesex all my focus was on helping middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later i've scored a test century which is something i'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at lords in your first test match. i mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly i started thinking wow hold on I'm, potentially i've got a whole england career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years of age. I was pretty 
comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it's it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual 
competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda – was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, 
and you're not doing your but job absolutely. properly. Absolutely. Um, and wi with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very 
new experience for you? Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about opportunity of winning the 2019 world cup i had this vision in my mind of lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it mm. no one could have dreamt no how it played out i've never seen anything i've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life and for it to be the world cup final was quite extraordinary i know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because i yeah well so was, <laughs> was i yeah. actually yeah <laughs> absolutely um now and you, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, fathers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. And so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018... Uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight, rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about, about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we 
I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.